Andy, what are you doing here? Hi, everyone. This is Andy Moore, and welcome back to Andy's Treasure Trove, the podcast where I share conversations that I've had with creative, talented, and engaging people that I've either known or admired, or often both. Today's topic is the increasing use of consciousness-expanding substances for health and personal spiritual growth. People around the world are using these consciousness-expanding substances, also called psychedelics or hallucinogens, to treat conditions ranging from allergies and anxiety to alcoholism and addiction, post-traumatic stress disorder, and many other problems. Some people use these materials regularly in low doses to enhance their everyday life. Some use them in higher doses for more profound experiences. This is a topic that has gotten more attention these days due in part to Michael Pollan's recent book entitled How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. The book includes accounts of his own personal experiments with LSD, psilocybin, and DMT. I thought that now would be a good time to dig into my trove of recordings and play you some of them that I've made on this topic uh, over the years, starting in 1976 when Timothy Leary came to speak at my college, up to just a couple weeks ago when I recorded an interview with a friend who was under the influence of LSD at the time. This episode, number 23, is the first of a pair of episodes on the same topic. I had about 90 minutes worth of material and this time decided to split it into two episodes. I hope that works for you. In this installment, I'm going to start out by playing you part of a recording that I made in 1991 of a talk given by Terence McKenna at the California Institute for Integral Studies in San Francisco. Terence was a visionary explorer and writer and a singularly engaging speaker, I find. He wrote books like The Archaic Revival, Food of the Gods, and True Hallucinations, all of which I own and recommend. He also happened to have gone to high school with one of my best friends in San Francisco, so I'm lucky to have gotten to know Terry personally a little bit too, and I also treasure a letter that he sent me just a short while before he died. After Terrence McKenna, we're going to hear from Rick Doblin, the president of an organization called MAPS, M-A-P-S, which stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Rick will talk about that organization's work to bring currently illegal psychedelic materials into the light of science so that they can be studied properly and used to help people. You'll hear Rick speaking to doctors, therapists, researchers, and other members of MAPS at a MAPS conference in San Jose in 2010. And then you'll hear Rick in conversation with me at MAPS former headquarters in Ben Lomond, California, where I met him for the first time. Let's get into it right now. Here's ethnobotanist, mystic, author, and lecturer Terence McKenna talking about the role that hallucinogenic mushrooms might have played in doubling the size of the humanoid brain a few eons ago, and he offers some practical guidance for today about the personal use of hallucinogenic substances. The complete acceptance of rationalism, materialism, reductionism, um, the evident preeminence of the here and now is the world that most people live in because that is the culturally sanctioned uh, model 
It's a, a fairly cheerless model, and it's grown up out of 500 years, at least, of the practice of science in an atmosphere of complete uh, suppression of the feminine, complete suppression of feeling of any sort. And uh, once you come into that position, in a sense, you have grown up in this society. These are the philosophies of adulthood, uh, existentialism, Heideggerian existentialism, psychologism, pragmatism. I mean, no, people don't call them these things. They call them giving up and cutting a deal <laughs> and facing it and stuff like that. But in fact, it turns out that uh, this is just a cultural style. It's simply an intellectual model. And uh, the way I learned this, of course, was by having recourse to practices, religious sensibilities that are outside, completely unsanctioned and outside the mainstream of this culture. And, of course, psychedelic plants, because this is um, the broader basis for the exploration of mind as it has gone on in most cultures in most times and places. We have to remember that history, if we think of it as 15,000 years, is itself nothing more than one coat of paint on the experience of mind, which is at least 200,000 years deep. I mean, I would think that's a conservative estimate of the career of mind. So only lately has mind chosen to clothe itself in the appurtenances of history. And what was it doing before that? We haven't the faintest idea. Poetry? Nothing? Crossword puzzles? I mean, there's a, it's just terra incognito. And yet, once I had recaptured this sense of the mystery through splitting apart my boundaries, through dissolving my cultural conventions into the raw fact of primate physiology, which is essentially what happens with these things. Once I had done that, and to use a biblical turn of phrase, the scales fell from my eyes, then I saw that this mystery, which had been so elusive, had in fact been present and active throughout my entire existence, throughout everyone's existence, and that we don't see the mystery because certain cultural conventions have been set in place to make what is in fact an extraordinary situation seem very mundane. What is the extraordinary situation? It's the circumstance of uh, an intelligent, self-reflecting species being loose on the surface of a planet. <laughs> now, granted, we haven't visited many planets, but we have 
gone deep into the stratigraphy of this planet. We've gone four billion years deep into the stratigraphy of this planet. And never before, so far as we can tell, has mind emerged out of the preconditions of biology. What is not old is conscious self-reflection. It emerged a cosmic millisecond ago, and it is some kind of catalyst in the world of the natural order. It is um, a state of extraordinary dynamic instability, a leap from the unreflecting animal to a global cybernetic consciousness of some sort, 15,000 years. There's never been anything like it. The previous most um, spectacular example of an evolutionary leap also, interestingly enough, occurs in our own species. It's that over the past three million years, the human brain has doubled in size. This is the most dramatic expansion of the size of a major organ in a major phyla in the history of life. Three million years for the doubling of this major organ, followed then by a 15,000-year leap into what? Into epigenetic information transfer. What do I mean by that? Genetics, you all understand. Genetics are genes written in DNA which when uncoded through the process of being read by ribosomes and converted into protein, create the miracle of organic life. Nature is a genetic machine. It passes genes along. It eliminates some and preserves others in a kind of self-referential process of fitting itself to the environment. This is the old, old process that dominates this planet and that we would expect to find in any situation. And we, so far as we can tell, are the only species that has gained access to this peculiar ability to use codes which are not genetic codes. They are culturally sanctioned codes. And it can be four sub-teen boys who get together in a hideout and decide that they will have their own secret language to China, you know, with a billion people speaking and understanding one language. But these are culturally sanctioned coding systems. And they have allowed us to work the miracle of human civilization. And this returns me to my thought, which is, the presence of the mystery. The mystery lies in this peculiar realm so close to ourselves, the realm of human language and its effects. This is the thumbprint of God on creation. We are the irreducible miracle. 
if, if there were not human beings with their civilizations on this planet, it would pose no major explanatory problem. It's just biology going on in an oxygen-rich, water-heavy environment. No big deal. But the presence of a poetry-making, dream-making, self-hating, cannibalistic, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> you know, narcissistic, incestuous, child-abusing species <laughs> is cause for wonder and amazement. <laughs> How could such a thing be? How could a species, uh, something as lowly as a single species, detach itself from the engines of greeny nature and set off on a trajectory that was not sanctioned by the plan? How could such a thing happen? Well, one thing to look at is diet. Because strangely enough, this sudden expansion in brain size occurred right concomitant with the period of time when we were changing over from being arboreal fruititarian types to being omnivores with a fair percentage of red meat in the diet, but a very broad diet. And uh, if you know anything about evolutionary theory, you know that when an animal broadens its diet, it expands its susceptibility to exposure to mutagens. This is why most animal species eat only a few things, because these are the foods that they have found they can deal with without being exposed to mutagens. If you're starving and you start testing everything and eating it, chewing on stuff. There are mutagens, carcinogens, things which affect ovulation, lactation, uh, eyesight. You're going to become subject to all of this. Uh, and there are other characteristics like this that probably were caused by exposure to mutagens and hallucinogens. Now, the one that interests me is psilocybin. And I will run through it very quickly because it's my effort to be the new Darwin, so I couldn't miss a room full of people to tell you this story. It's, a, it's my theory of human evolution, and it goes like this. Um, these primates were forced out of the trees by uh, drying of the African veldt. And at that time, because of the disappearance of the forest, there was this omnivorous pressure toward an omnivorous diet. Concomitantly and in the same environment, ungulate mammals of many types were evolving. Well, as many of you probably know, the dung of ungulate mammals is the preferred environment for many psilocybin-containing species of mushrooms. So here we have this baboon-like proto-hominid creature foraging empty-bellied on the African veldt, and uh, the theory is that they trailed along behind these herds because they were predating uh, on lion kills. We actually ate carrion at one period in our existence, and some evolutionary biologists believe the suppression of odor sensitivity in man 
is an evolutionary adaptation to allow you to eat rank meat. Isn't that nice? But anyway, this style uh, got going of traveling along behind these ungulate herds. Well, if you travel, if you're moving behind a herd of ungulates, you encounter their dung, and in the dung you would encounter the mushroom. Now, here's the three-step theory. When you take very small amounts of psilocybin, so small that you do not detect it as a psychological shift of any sort, your eyesight improves quite dramatically. This is an understood phenomenon. Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that if there's a food in the environment that an animal can eat, and it's a hunting animal, and this food will improve its eyesight, it's going to have greater success in hunting, and therefore more of its offspring will attain uh, reproductive maturity. Therefore, it will, it will outbreed the non-psilocybin-using population. If you take slightly more psilocybin, because it is a CNS stimulator, central nervous system stimulator, it causes what's called generalized arousal. This means restlessness, activity, can't sit still, and often uh, in the male erection. Uh, then where you have this uh, arousal situation, you have what primatologists call more instances of successful copulation. <laughs> These animals are having more sex and they're better fed. So you don't, again, you see a second factor causing them to outbreed the non-psilocybin-using population. And then finally, on the higher level, the, the full dose, then you get the psychedelic experience, which we, with Wittgenstein and atom smashers and all that standing behind us, we don't know what the psychedelic, we have no grip, more grip on the, what the psychedelic experience is than the Cro-Magnon did. <laughs> I mean, we stare at it, our jaws hang in air. So uh, there you have it, uh, as the king said to Mozart. When you bring all these factors together, better fed, sexually um, active, and visionarily empowered, when you bring all this together, you get a religious style that was lunar, orgiastic, and boundary dissolving. And this is the key thing. The psilocybin was being taken like an inoculation against the formation of ego. Because ask yourself, if you were part of a tribe of 70 people who at every new and full moon all got loaded and jumped on each other in a heap, how much ego would you have? You would... <laughs> the first issue is to have a sitter or not to have a sitter. And I think if you have any trepidation, you should have a sitter, meaning worry. If you're worried or concerned, you should have a sitter. My notion of the ideal sitter is somebody who's one room away. Then I believe you should do it on an empty stomach in silent darkness, and a 145-pound person should take five dried grams. 
and uh, you know, draw yourself a little graph. If you weigh more, take more. If you weigh less, take less. Do not listen to music. I don't. I think that's a complete. I mean, it's totally pointless for you to come out of this trip saying that Bach is God. <laughs> you have not made a contribution to our understanding of anything. So, and you really haven't understood anything by that either. The most interesting music is, comes out of silence, you know, and the most interesting visions come out of silence. So you sit in silent darkness, and you breathe, and you watch your closed eyelids with the expectation of seeing something. And uh, it, it will come. It, it will come. And then you sit with it. And if it's frightening, you sing. And you sing so that you won't be afraid, and so that you force oxygen through your body, and you push the physiological vehicle around. And you sit still, and you observe. And, you know, that's about all you can say about it. It's not like anything else. Uh, it is its own thing. But the key things are empty stomach, anxiety-free environment, silent darkness, supportative arrangements, whatever that means to you, you know. Here's my criteria for choosing a compound to integrate into a program of spiritual growth. The first thing you should ask of this compound is, does it occur in nature? It should occur in nature, because that means it's been use-tested in, in cellular machinery for millions of years. Okay, then the next thing is, um, does it have a history of human usage? Each one of these questions will further narrow the spectrum of possibilities. Does it have a history of human usage? It should have a history of human usage, because most of these drugs are illegal. So how are you going to get an FDA statement of approval that it doesn't cause miscarriage, blindness, tumors, abortion, broken chromosome, whatever? Well, the way you obtain that is by choosing a plant with thousands of years of human usage. And then that is your study group. And they prove that it's OK. And then the third and most uh, uh, restrictive criteria is, I believe that this compound should have a relationship to ordinary brain chemistry. It shouldn't be just like, you know, some totally alien thing which the cellular machinery of your brain doesn't know how to break apart or get rid of or sequester or, or do anything with. And when you apply that rule, uh, pretty much what you're left with is psilocybin, DMT, well, harmine, the beta-carbolines, and then in a sort of slightly less central category, the lysergamides and uh, ibogaine. And the opiates, ayahuasca definitely. Ayahuasca is brain soup. 
There is nothing. <laughs> there is nothing in ayahuasca that isn't in the brain of each of you as you sit here. So it's almost not a drug, but a ratio differential. You know, that's all. Uh, you can think of the hallucinogens as exopheromones, chemicals which carry information from one species to another. That's the definition of an exopheromone. Well, that's precisely what a hallucinogen does. Nature is rich, complex. Every society that has ever established itself on the earth has thought that it lacked only 5% of the uh, complete understanding of nature. I suspect uh, that nobody knows anything, and that when we finally do gain some kind of understanding of nature, then the mystery of the dead souls, the extraterrestrials, the angels, the demons, and the prompting voices that have haunted our history from its dimmest beginnings will be revealed for all to see. Thank you very much. Now let's listen to Rick Doblin, president of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as MAPS, speaking at the MAPS conference in San Jose, California in 2010. Now, I've been hoping for this sort of, I've been working towards this since I was 18 years old and when I first took LSD. I was persuaded as I was growing up that one dose of LSD made you permanently crazy. And, and I really did believe that. And so it, it took a lot for me to try to start questioning that. It, it actually started with uh, One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey, which I read and I thought, this is a fantastic book. And then a friend said, part of this was written under the influence of LSD. I was like, how can that possibly be? But what really motivated me was being born in 1953 into a Jewish family and growing up in the shadow of the Holocaust. And I've been traumatized sort of at a distance by this incredible ferocity of hatred and projection that people can permit themselves to engage in. And I've felt as I was growing up, I, I needed to respond to that, that that was the biggest threat to my life. And then I started noticing all around me this ramp up to the Vietnam War and that I would be asked to fight. I was of draft age, I was the last year of the lottery. And I felt that that was a little bit of the same kind of process of demonization and projection and scapegoating. And it felt to me like I was not gonna participate. And I decided to become a draft resistor and go to jail, as an example. And to my utter pleasure and surprise, I didn't register for the draft and absolutely nothing happened. <laughs> And then I had the, uh, talk about the moral elasticity. <laughs> I, I had the dilemma of trying to say, hey, should I raise my hand? Hey, put me in jail. <laughs> or should I try to um, do something else? And as I was learning about psychedelics, I was noticing that I had hoped that my bar mitzvah would turn me into a man. <laughs> and it didn't. <laughs> And the, the, the traditional rituals that we often go through have, for many of us, lost their power. And LSD 
started making me think, maybe this can help me turn into a man. But it was really much harder than I had anticipated. And I was floundering. And I went to the guidance counselor at our college, and I was just so fortunate that he had a manuscript copy of Realms of the Human Unconscious by Stan Groff. And he gave it to me to read. And once I started reading Stan's work, it all started coming together for me. Because here was a way, through science, I'm very suspicious of religion and uh, kind of things that are not questioned, things that are said to be so divinely inspired that there is no doubt permitted. But here was a way to look at religion, at values, at spirituality through a scientific lens. And there was something about it that was focused, Stan's work on therapy, on healing. It was the practical test. It was reality testing. Can people actually get better? And I felt that here was an antidote to Hitler. Here was a way to really try to delve deep into the psyche, our own and others, and maybe then we could build a safer world on this foundation. And the foundation went down deep to this mystical experience of unity, which can be accessed through psychedelics, through many other areas and ways. Psychedelics are not essential, but for many of us, they have been crucial. And I felt that this would be the better alternative to work on with my life. And I felt since I was a draft resistor, I could never be a doctor or a lawyer. I'd never get a socially sanctioned license. So I thought, at age 18, I'm going to become a psychedelic therapist. It's a career that does not require a license <laughs> at the time. Um, and we're hoping, of course, that, that we will be licensing psychedelic therapists in the future. It was the positive alternative. It was creating something that was healing, that was loving. And I woke up to this, though, just as the research was being shut down. And that was just very disappointing to me to see that as I finally broke through the prejudices that I'd been educated with and saw value, that there was this massive counter-reaction. And I thought that this would be a place to devote my life's energy. And I figured that this same analysis would be adopted, conducted by hundreds and thousands of other people that they would see here in the psychedelics were tools that we could use to build a healthier world. And it was surprising to me that, that there that there was so complete of a, of a squashing throughout the world of this incredibly promising work. A couple years later, after I had made this decision, I had a dream. There was a man who was dying, and he was in a, a, we were in a white room, he was on a bed, he was on his deathbed, and he was saying that he had been, through great luck, saved from murder. He was uh, a Holocaust survivor. He'd been part of a mass shooting and a mass grave and had been uh, buried alive and climbed up after a couple days and escaped. And he said that he knew that he was saved for some purpose and he wasn't sure what that purpose was, but now he knew that it was to tell me to be a psychedelic therapist. And as I heard that, I said to myself, I have already chosen this path and so you can lay that burden on me and I can accept it, and you can die peacefully. And, and then he did. And so I think this, for me, explains why I really love to work so much. I feel so 
grateful to have the freedoms and the opportunities that we have here in the United States. I think if I would have tried this in other countries, many other countries I would have, and many of us, would no longer be around here to talk about it. Two years before that conference, I met Rick for the first time after trekking up into the Santa Cruz Mountains next to Love Creek on a cold, wintry night in 2008 to a house that was the temporary headquarters of MAPS at the time. It was one of the first interviews I recorded for this podcast, and I'm sorry to say that the audio isn't great, but I think it'll be clear enough to understand. Well, I'm in Ben Lomond, California, and I'm here visiting with MAPS's president, Rick Doblin, who's going to tell us all about what MAPS is, does, and will be doing, and why it should be important to us. Andy, it's a pleasure to uh, be part of your treasure trove. <laughs> well, now, you, you were always a treasure in my trove, but now you know it. Now I know it. And now my listeners know it. Well, MAPS is um, an effort through a nonprofit context to bring an ever-expanding range of uses of psychedelic substances and marijuana into a more wider acceptance. Take things that are often um, integrated into society and history, but in our culture tend to be now criminalized and more underground, and trying to cautiously and carefully change that status and sort of heal the wounds of the 60s and bring back the combination of kind of the visionary and the practical and um, not have counterculture and culture, but try to have one unified group. And that psychedelic states of mind are increasingly necessary in our society there's always um, financial shocks and environmental shocks there's there's a lot of emotional work to do genocide still going on wars and there's uh, overdevelopment of people's intellect and under development of people's emotional capacities and so that there's more of a need for these psychedelic states and we understand more about them and see them less as magic bullets that and generated this kind of superior wisdom of things, but more than something that just helped people be more, uh, more of themselves, more of the range of themselves, more directly in contact or experience with. And that would help people who our society values. And our mission is to develop drugs that are not otherwise being developed into prescription medicines to educate the public about that and to help create contexts where they can be used as medicines. Well, that seems to be the crux of the issue is that these substances have become so taboo that you're not even allowed to study them. Well, that's been changing. There has been um, about a 35-year period of the suppression of psychedelic research uh, by and large into the therapeutic uses. There's this incredible flurry of research, thousands of papers, lots through the 40s, 50s, 60s, and then early 70s, and then this reaction that just shut it all down. People think about where did things go wrong. It's when Timothy Leary got kicked out of Harvard and then proceeded to scandalize and proselytize. Now it's uh, beginning again, and that we've really reach this wonderful point where we've got into therapy studies. See psychotherapy research going on now in Switzerland, people with anxiety about end-of-life issues, and we also have psychedelic research back at Harvard. So now there's MDMA research taking place at Harvard Medical School, looking at it with cancer patients with anxiety. 
then we're doing work with returning veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan, and also with mostly with women with sexual assault, people with post-traumatic stress disorder. And we've been able to complete a study. It took us 22 years of trying to get to this point of having our first pilot study of the therapeutic use. And the study has succeeded uh, to the point where we're not talking about symptom reduction, but about cures. Not in everybody, but in some people. And that we're comparing this to the pharmaceutical products that are available that are more modest in their therapeutic benefits. Well, what strikes me most about your organization, it's sort of a David and Goliath uh, situation. Uh, yeah, yeah. But you've, you're, you're not trying to get around things, and you're not trying to sneak things through. You're going right up into the face yes, yes. of the beast and saying, we will follow all your rules. We just want to be treated like everyone else. Yeah, and not only that, but the, it's that we are taking their Goliath and using it for our purposes. Mm. So the best example that I could give you right there is that to make a drug into a medicine, it's a very expensive proposition because you need all this information and you need this information that can cost millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars about the risks of your drug so that you can know what the risks are. They know the risks on just like a few thousand people that got it in research. So the one in a hundred thousand that has this or that happen, they don't know yet. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're having with all the different drugs when they get released. It's only been tested on a certain number of people, and then you get this rare thing, and the world's so big, and a bunch of people die from something that nobody died from in the clinical studies. What's happening here is that millions of people have taken MDMA and all these drugs, so we know the one in three million per time where somebody drinks too much water. So we know all way more about the risks of MDMA than any pharmaceutical drug that is made into a medicine. And at the same time, because it's illegal, the government of our country and other governments all over the world have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on what's wrong with these drugs so that they can do these studies and then use it as part of their education about don't do these drugs. I think that these um, tools, um, they go back thousands of years, but they're like 21st century medicines. They're super sophisticated. But there's something that's integrative and rich about the experience and what a privilege to, to think that you've got this tremendous tool that will contribute to great things to the world, but you can't actually test it because the system will never let you do it. And But you think you've got it, you know? It's just like you sit there, but then they say, okay, well, now, now maybe we need you, you know, prove it. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> You're on. <laughs> well, I want to thank you personally for all your work in this realm. And, um, you know, I don't know if you have to worry about being in the spotlight in this regard and and coming out as somebody who is honest about something that's taboo in our culture, but I think it takes a lot of uh, courage to do. I mean, I'm kind of, um, I feel safer because of it rather than less safe. The universe of discourse has gotten wider. And at the same time, what I've been able to expand over time is the range of people that I engage in conversation or that in, in different ways through scientific studies or through podcasts or through or different ways that we're having this discussion with a frightened, misinformed, desperately needy, you know, hopeful culture. And 
you know, the key to our whole thing is that the government has lost all credibility about the benefits because it denies that there's any benefits, and it's lost all credibility about the risks because it way exaggerates it. So we have to, we have an opportunity. There's like a vacuum. Mm-hmm. We're working with cluster headaches. We're trying to develop help with the development of LSD and psilocybin for treating cluster headaches. That came from patients who figured it out themselves serendipitously. And then mm. because of the internet, they formed a group and others started uh, communicating with each other. And they decided, some of them tried the psilocybin, some of the LSD, and it works. And then they approached me through this sort of um, satellite dish that is maps. And they came in and they, they said, we don't want to be criminals. You know, we, we're not acid heads. We just, something about these medicines helps us. And we think you can be our vehicle. Um, and so we have. So we've been. It's been um, amazing to, to see it work. Well, I, wa- I just remembered um, one of the first MAPS newsletters that I received. Mm-hmm. It had a, um, a picture of your baby son oh, in it. Oh, gosh. And uh, <laughs> I realized in a subsequent issue that I wasn't alone. And when yeah. I looked at the picture, I thought, oh, something's wrong with that that's child. Hilarious. I wonder if that's a birth defect. <laughs> and, you know, then I read it your letter and the following issue. Some of you have written to me and I want to clarify that there's nothing wrong with my son. That was a Cheerio stuck yeah. to his lower lip. <laughs> no. And I was like, I thought when you're a first time parent, you just think that everybody <laughs> is familiar with it. I was just, yeah. Then yeah. I, I don't know if you can get it. Maybe this would be the way to end the podcast. Would be, we're on love Creek and it's been raining and you might be able to hear the, Creek ripple. I the babbling brook. The babbling brook. Oh, look, you can. Let's, let's end the put. Can you hear? Well, there you have it, as Terence McKenna said, the king said to Mozart. As the water trickles through Love Creek, my thanks goes out to the late Terence McKenna, somehow, and to Rick Doblin of MAPS, as well as MAPS itself, for allowing me to use the recording of Rick at their conference. The next episode of Andy's Treasure Trove, number 24, which you can listen to right now, features pioneer LSD researcher Ralph Metzner, controversial LSD proselytizer Timothy Leary, Dr. Andrew Weil. This is Dr. Andrew Weil on Andy's Treasure Trove. And someone anonymous who took LSD before our interview. Please do me a big favor, won't you, by sharing each of these two episodes with your friends on social media? And please leave comments and reviews on iTunes. There's a handy link to do that on the webpage for this episode on andystreasuretrove.com, where you'll find all the episodes of my podcast, along with some of my films, videos, photos, and other artwork. Thanks very much for listening and sharing. See you next time. All rights reserved. Thank you, Andrew, and goodbye.